Well, if you're a first-time guest with us this morning, I realized in my welcome I didn't introduce myself. My name is Aaron, uh, teaching pastor here at Riverwood, and uh, just thrilled that every single one of you uh, are here. My family and I moved to Waverly to start Riverwood Church uh, just over five years ago. And uh, a few months after we'd been here, we were kind of looking for some sort of activity to do as as a family to kind of get to know the area a little better and just, you know, get some time with one another. And so we ended up going down to the Imaginarium down in Waterloo. How many of you have been down to the Imaginarium? Okay, few few hands. What I remember is, now keep in mind, this is like five years ago. So our, so our kids are, you know, five years younger. And what I remember is our youngest ones, especially our boys, dragging us around going, Daddy, Daddy, look at this. Mommy, Mommy, come here. You got to see this. And like, it was just constant rushing, flitting from one thing to the next, not really taking anything in. Well, have you ever noticed how our culture is kind of like a kid in a muse- children's museum? I mean, our culture just constantly flits from one thing to the next. I mean, sometimes we stay on something for a few years, like in a political uh, election cycle. Every four years, it seems like a different topic comes up. I, I remember when it was the flat tax. That's what everyone was talking about. And, and then like four years later, no one's mentioning the flat tax. It, it's like, I think, school choice. Or then it was gun control or, or it's the economy. Like every four years, it seems like we're talking about something different. But this is not just a political phenomenon. Like, like, this happens in fashion. Like, it's always changing. We flip from one style to the next. You know, first your jeans are really wide, then they're really skinny, then they go back to wide. Like, it just constantly changes. Or our entertainment. You know, you'll see, you know, one type of movie, and then you see that same effect in several movies until they finally drift onto something else. We're just constantly flitting and rushing from one thing to the next. And what happens is that we, because we're part of the culture, end up moving along with them. Because when you go to work, you talk with your, your you know, workmates. They're talking about these things. Or you get on social media, or you open up the newspaper, you turn on the radio in the car, and you are forced to have to think about these things. When you have a message regularly being brought to you, sometimes you end up changing your mind. Because if you hear it enough, you begin to believe it's true. Now, I'm glad that our society has changed on some subjects, that that we have changed our minds. For instance, 150 years ago, slavery was okay. I'm really, really glad that our culture has changed, and now we see it for the evil that it truly is. Slavery is not okay, just in case you didn't know. But our society finally changed its mind. But there are some things that our society has changed its mind. It's flitting around, and sometimes it's leaving something that's actually good. And one of those things that I believe has changed is marriage. For centuries, most civilizations have held on to this idea that marriage is between one man, one woman brought together for life. Now, let me put a little disclaimer on this. Yes, there have been civilizations, cultures, where it is not just one man, one woman. It could be one man with many women. Like polygamy is okay in that culture. There are some that have not defined it by gender. Some cultures have been okay with it not being one man and one woman. It could be two men or two women. Some cultures, marriage actually isn't really about love and affection. It's more about just, you know, formality. It's an arrangement. It's like a contract. And then there are some cultures where marriage isn't even held up. There's like no societal idea of this, you know, bonding together. You know, it's just kind of everyone everywhere. Those are the minority. Throughout history, the majority have held on to this idea, this definition, that it's one man, one woman, 
brought together for life. But that is changing. I went to the Czech Republic to teach English at a business camp, and I had the joy and privilege of teaching the highest level class. Now, before you start thinking that means, oh, Aaron must be really, really good at teaching English. No, they actually give the dumbest people the highest level class because I could just speak English. Like, literally, my students were teaching me English. Uh, I could tell you some really hilarious stories. So I got to teach the highest level class, and I tried to get to know each of my students. Uh, one of my students, I, I unfortunately do not remember her name, but she was a lawyer at some company, and I was learning from her that she had a boyfriend of like 11 years. And I was trying to figure out, like, are you guys going to get married? And she's like, no, I don't think we'll ever marry. So I had to kind of ask, well, why? You guys obviously are committed to one another. She said the divorce rate in the Czech Republic is so high. Ever since communism fell, Czechoslovakia got broken up, in came all this Western civilization, including divorce. The divorce rate skyrocketed, and now most everyone gets divorced. And so she and her boyfriend decided, hey, if we're just going to get divorced, why bother to get married? And so they were choosing never to marry. I've seen that mentality trickle into America. I have had conversations with people who have talked about their fear of divorce and that fear of divorce has affected them to the point that they've either lowered their idea of what marriage is or they end up deciding to do things such as living together before marriage. It, it, you know, in some ways, that actually makes a lot of sense. You, you, you live together, see each other in the day-to-day. -day, you kind of see how it goes. And, and if it works out, great. You know that you're made for each other and you get married. And if it doesn't work out, okay, at least now we know. We don't have to go through the pain of divorce, kind of like the gal I knew in the Czech Republic. However, studies continue to show that couples that cohabitate before marriage have a higher divorce rate than those who don't. It's like the very thing that you're working toward to protect the relationship actually ends up undermining it. Now, I have all sorts of theories of why this is the case. I'm not going to take the time to go into it today. But it just studies continue to show that living together before marriage actually sets you up for a greater chance of divorce. And that statistic does not take into account the 50% of relationships that don't even make it to a wedding. 50% of couples that cohabitate before marriage end up breaking the relationship off before they ever get to the point of saying, I do. But those that do say, I do, those who do stand on a stage before, whether it's a judge or a pastor or a priest, and then they commit their lives to one another, that institution is now being viewed like it's a prison. In fact, uh, not that long ago, I officiated a wedding for a couple, <clears throat> excuse me, and the uh, groom had a brother who was going to be one of the groomsmen, and he showed up at the wedding rehearsal wearing this shirt, a frowning groom, a smiling bride, and the words, game over. And what, you know, everyone saw that and kind of laughed, but that says more about our culture and society than we want to care to admit, because it's viewed like the woman won the guy now has no freedom. Pr marriage is now this prison, and, and the fun's over. That's how our society is viewing marriage, which is why 41% of all marriages experience some sort of infidelity, whether it's physical or emotional. 41%. And when I learned that statistic this week, I also learned that 74% of men and 68% of women would have an affair if they wouldn't get caught. You hear that? Almost three-fourths of husbands and almost as many women 
would have an affair. They would cheat on their spouse if they knew they could not get caught. Why? Because we viewed marriage as this prison. Like it's to rob us of joy. Like it's keeping us from what's really going to make us happy. But what if God actually designed marriage to not be prison, but to actually be something that gives us life? What if it's not something that's supposed to suck us of joy, but actually to infuse us with joy? What if it's something that God actually wants to use to grow you, to help you become more and more like Jesus? The good news is, it is, and it can be. But in order for you, if you are married or you have desire to be married one day, in order for you to experience that kind of marriage, it means you're going to have to think and operate in a way that's very different than how our culture operates. If you just fall into the mind think of the culture around us, what I'm about to teach today is going to sound awful and cruel and impossible. But if you are a Jesus follower and you want to experience marriage like God designed it to be, you're going to have to go against how the world thinks marriage should be lived out. And you're going to have to view it differently and act differently. Now, I'm going to be honest. We're going to see today, it's very, very difficult to do. But when you allow God to work through you to see this happen, you will experience the greatest joy in your marriage you ever thought possible. It will actually exceed your dreams. And that's what we're going to look at today. Would you join me in prayer? So, Father, as we get ready to open up the scriptures, um, I thank you that these words have been around far longer than I've been alive, and your words in the scriptures will resonate far after I am gone. And so, Father, I realize today it is not about what I want to say speaking into this modern-day culture. This is about what you want to say, taking your ancient, beautiful, timeless scriptures and speak into our world. Father, I realize that your scriptures, they, they don't align with any particular culture. And so that means today we're going to hear some things that, that are, are an affront to how our culture thinks and, and acts and believes right now. And so would you give us the guts to truly hear from you, to allow you to speak into us, to shape our minds and our hearts the way that you want it to be? Because I know, Father, that your desire is to restore your image within us so that we will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And I believe that one of the things that you use to accomplish that in us is marriage. So, Father, I pray for anyone here today who is not married, whether that's because of the pain of divorce or maybe they just find themselves single. And if this is something that they are longing for, I pray that you would bring comfort to them and that they would hear something in this that actually encourages them. Pray for anyone who is here today who finds themselves in a difficult situation in their marriage. I, I pray that they would actually feel encouraged in this. And this would give them hope that you are at work. And Father, I pray for those that have a great marriage, that today would encourage them to keep going and to even go further and deeper with what you desire for them. So Father, would you open up Romans and Ephesians to us? May you be our teacher today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, with that said, if you brought a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 12. We are in the fourth week of a series called And Jesus. We are looking today at this idea of marriage. We, I'll be honest, this is our third week uh, in this particular passage. Uh, we're, we're in Romans 12, 9 through 21. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at it from the concept of just relationships overall, just looking at relationships in general. Last week, we looked at the same exact passage, but we looked at it through a filter of children. 
How are we to relate to kids, whether they be our own and as we are parents, or maybe it's the kids of our friends like here at Riverwood, or maybe, you know, extended family, our, our nieces and nephews, or even kids around the world. That's why we highlighted Compassion International. If you did not have an opportunity to sponsor a child last week and you found yourself longing to do that, God kind of speaking to you, we still have some sponsorship packets in the back. Uh, we have to send those back this week. So if you have a desire to, to sponsor a kid, you can do that, or you can go online and choose a child in just about uh, any of the countries that they work in. You can even find one that has maybe your birth date, uh, and then you have that special tie with them. But we encourage you, love the kids around you, both the local ones and the ones around the world. But today, I want to go back to this passage one more time because I want us to see that it doesn't just speak to relationships in general and doesn't just help us be better parents or, or better adults with kids. It can also help us be better within marriage. Now, the temptation to me would be to start right off with uh, verse 9, uh, kind of like I did last week, because 9 and 10, I, I just love these verses. Because, I mean, who wouldn't want a marriage where you're seeing that love is genuine? Like, I, I want to be, I want to experience my wife giving me genuine love, not like having to pretend or act. That would make me feel like a horrible husband. Like, I must be pathetic that she has to pretend to love me. No, I want genuine love. You know, I, I want to give genuine love. And who wouldn't want, down to verse 10, who wouldn't want a relationship where you outdo one another in showing honor? Years ago, I heard a story about a couple, I think at the time they were like in their 40s or 50s, and it was one of their kids telling the story, that the moms and dad, they would hide notes for one another around. And the notes just had six letters on it, S-H-M-I-L-Y, smiley. It stood for, see how much I love you? And they'd like stick them on the, the car steering wheel or in the kitchen cabinet or, you know, in the medicine cabinet. Like they would hide them around the house so the other would discover it. It was like they were trying to outdo each other. And who could get the notes to them? You know what the result of that game was? They loved their marriage. Who wouldn't love to be in a relationship where someone's constantly honoring you? When you feel honored by them, what do you want to do? You want to pour the honor back. And now they feel honored, and it just keeps the cycle going. We would love to experience that. But I don't want to just camp out in verses 9 and 10, because I think there's some other verses here that really speak deeply into marriage. So jump down to verse 15 with me. Paul writes in uh, Romans 12, 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Any of you ever had a really bad day? Okay, every hand should be in the air, okay? If you've never had a bad day, I want to know what your, your secret is, okay? All of us have had a bad day. If you are married and you've had a bad day and you come home, how do you think you'd feel if you find your spouse camped out in front of the TV with a do not disturb sign on their face? Or, or they're on their phone and you're trying to tell them about your day and they're just going, uh-huh, yeah, okay, you don't feel loved because they're not weeping with you as you are weeping. They seem to be rejoicing in something else. Why does that bring so much pain? Back in Genesis chapter 2, when, when it talks about the, the you know, creation of Adam and Eve and God bringing them together, it says, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And then here's this phrase, and the two will become one flesh. I love officiating weddings. There, there's something really special about standing up there on that stage with this groom and this bride and watching them exchange vows and knowing in that moment, God is taking these two individuals and he's fusing them into one flesh. That's why in America, often the bride takes the groom's last name to indicate we're one family. 
You know, there's just something about it. It's really, really beautiful. But when you come home after a bad day and you're wanting your spouse to weep with you because you're weeping and instead they're rejoicing in something else, it feels like a tearing, a, a pulling on that one flesh. That's why it hurts so deeply. That's why divorce is so hurtful because you have ripped the flesh. Have you ever had your flesh ripped? We want people to rejoice with us when we're rejoicing. We want people to weep with us when we're weeping. So if that's what we desire, that's what we should give. Because when you really rejoice with your spouse when they're rejoicing, and you truly weep with them, like where you set your thing aside to enter into their world, to show empathy with them, now that brings unity. And that's what Paul points out next, the very next phrase there in verse 16. He says, live in harmony with one another. I saw, I, I heard a guy talking about uh, his marriage and he traveled quite a bit for work. And he admitted that when he and his wife were getting along really, really well, his business trips were horrible because he would miss her so badly. And so he started getting into an argument with his wife before he headed off to the airport, simply so they would have some of this discord. And then he would have a much better trip because he wouldn't miss her nearly as much. True story. I heard the guy talk about this himself. Now, who's he thinking of? Himself? Yeah, he's not thinking about his wife. He's not seeking to live in harmony. He's just trying to protect himself. Like, man, it sucks to miss my wife. So guess what? I'm just going to make it awful. He brought discord, a ripping of that flesh for himself. I don't think any of us long for that in a relationship. We want to have this unity. We want to live in harmony. That's why Paul says down in verse 18, that so as, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Isn't that what we want to have in our marriages? We want to have peace? But what do you do when your spouse isn't being very peaceable? What do you do when, when, you know, she's saying really awful things about you to her friends? What do you do when he seems to be AWOL, absent without leaving? Like he's there present in physically, but he's not there emotionally. He's not there mentally. He's not invested in this thing. How do you live peaceably with that? Thankfully, Paul gives deeper instructions on marriage in his letter to the church in Ephesus. So if you know where the book of Ephesians is, flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5. We were in uh, the book of Ephesians last week um, when we looked at children. Uh, we saw in chapter 6 some instructions that God gave to kids, but then he also gave instructions to, to fathers. But before he gets to that, I'm sorry, not just fathers, it, it was parents. But before he gets to that, he talks about marriage. And he addresses both the wife and the husband. So let me read Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish, that she might be holy, and I'm sorry, without any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This passage, especially the beginning portion, is very, very controversial. And I discovered just how controversial it is when I was hanging out with a group of my high school friends. Uh, I think Leanne and I had been married for, I'm going to guess, six, seven years. Uh, We'd come back from Venezuela. Uh, We had baby Karis, but we had no Megan yet. And uh, we were back at my parents, back in my hometown for Christmas. And turns out that a bunch of my high school friends had also come back for Christmas. Uh, Leanne and I were one of the few that were married. A few had some serious, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends. But we somehow found out we were all back. And this is pre-Facebook days, so we couldn't just post on each other's wall. Hey, you back in town? So we actually had to, like, call each other. And, and, uh, but it turns out that we were all back, so we got together at someone's house. And we're just sitting around talking, catching up. And I'm sitting with one of my best friends. Uh, from high school. And as we're talking, uh, another one of our friends comes up and sits down and joins in the conversation. Now, my friend and the one who joined us had gone to the same college, and it became pretty evident to me that they had just run into each other at the wedding of a friend of theirs from college. But as they were talking, the friend that joined us started ragging on the pastor's message. She was so offended by it Because the pastor used this passage right here, and she could not believe that this pastor had the gall to tell the bride, this future wife, to submit to her husband. Our culture finds this offensive. I, I won't even use the word offensive. I think some of them find it abusive. This just seems wrong. So I want to look at it a little deeper to see, does our culture have... Is there merit in what they think of this, or is something else going on? So first, look at it with me. Who is it that the wife is supposed to submit to? It says, submit to your own husbands. So it it doesn't mean, wives, you must submit to any man. All right, now, if you get pulled over by the police officer, please, would you just submit to to things, okay? Uh, or, Or if you have a boss, you know, there's no reason to, like, throw a temper tantrum in his office. You know, like, no. You know, try to submit to the authorities that God has put in your life. But it's saying here, submit to your own husbands. This is not just that women are less than men. This is, no, in your marriage, part of your role is to submit to your own husband. Now, that's what seems so offensive. It seems like it's putting less than. We're going to define that in a minute. But I want you to notice the next part of it. Don't stop with the word husbands. In my Bible, there's only a comma, not a period. It says, as to the Lord. Now, that does not mean that wives, your husband becomes like Jesus to you. So therefore, you must worship him. No, please don't, all right? Your husband is imperfect. Do not worship him. Worship God only. What it means is that your submission to your husband is really tied to your submission to Jesus. Part of your worship of God can be seen and experienced through your submission to your Lord. Why? In Matthew 22, verse 30, uh, Jesus is being confronted by uh, some Sadducees. They're trying to trap him. And as he's working out through their trap, showing that he truly is God, he he truly has authority, that he is the author of the Bible, he lets them know as they're trying to trap him with this idea of marriage. He says, hey, there is no marriage in heaven. I remember sitting down with an engaged couple. They're so excited to get married. And somehow in our discussions, we end up on that Matthew 22 verse. And the bride looks at me and goes, that's so sad. Why why is marriage just for this earth? Why is it not for heaven? Well, Paul alludes to it there in Ephesians 5. 
There's one marriage in heaven. It's between Jesus and his church. That's the marriage. That's why the church is sometimes called the bride of Christ. And so the marriages that we see on this earth, they ultimately are to point to the ultimate marriage, Jesus and his church. And it reminds us it's just for this earth. It's just for the here and now. So wives, that means that your marriage is temporary, which means your submission is temporary. But your submission to Jesus is eternal. That's why I think this isn't so much about your husband as I think it is about your relationship with God. Because when you submit to your husband, really what you're doing is you're submitting to God. And you're saying, God, I trust you. I trust that you have put this man in my life. And even when he's not living out the way you call him to live, I will still respect him. I will still love him. I will still honor him because of Jesus. Wives, I'm just going to confess, us husbands, we botch it. We botch it big sometimes. Sometimes we do not love you the way you need to be loved. It's not genuine. We are not giving you honor. We are not doing what God calls us to. We, we get so wrapped up in our work or our sports or our hobbies or, or the TV that we do not give you our full heart. And I'm sorry. But that does not mean you therefore have an excuse and an out to not submit to your husband. Now, I could go into some disclaimers, like if he's being physically abusive, there's some other things going on, but we're not going to talk about that at this moment. If your husband is around, then you need to do what you can to submit to him, to show respect, to show honor. But how do you do it when he's being a jerk? How do you do it when he seems to be present physically, but he's not there emotionally? You keep your eyes on Jesus. Because notice what Paul does there. After he tells wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, what's he do? He starts talking about the relationship of Jesus and the church. He keeps saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. I mean, in verse 23, he talks about Jesus. Verse 24, he talks about Jesus. He keeps pointing back to Christ. Because I think Paul knows, yeah, your husband, he is imperfect. It is really going to be difficult some days to submit to this guy. So that's why this ultimately is about you and Christ. Because this marriage, it will end. But your relationship with Jesus will go on forever. This is who you are ultimately honoring and worshiping. So make it about Christ. You see, the reason I think our culture is so offended at this word submission is that we have the wrong definition of it. In MMA, you know, to submit means to lose. You know, you tap out, right? What wife wants to lose in her, her uh, marriage? This isn't about losing and winning. The, the word submission does not mean that you are less than or, or of, of lesser value. You are absolutely co-equal with your husband. And to show you an example, all I have to do is point to Jesus. It, Jesus in John chapter 5 is having a conversation with some Jewish leaders. And in that conversation, he makes it pretty clear that he and God are equal. Now, this is highly offensive to the Jews at the time. Like, what man could claim to be God? And yet, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. However, in the same conversation, he also shows that he is submitted to the Father. So he's equal with the Father. He's fully God, and yet he willingly submits to the Father. If Jesus, God the Son, can submit... Wives, your value is not gone down because you are asked to submit to your husband. In fact, I think it is easier to submit 
than what God tells husbands that they have to do. Now, I realize that was just an offensive statement to some of you. But listen up. Follow me. All right? Verse 25. This is to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. All right, so what is it husbands are to do? They're to love their wives. How? As Christ loved the church. And how did Jesus show his love for the church? It says right there, gave himself up for her, which is a nice poetical way of saying that Jesus died. So congratulations, guys. You do not have to just submit and say, okay, whatever you want. You have to die to yourself for her sake. Just as Jesus died for you, he put your need for salvation before his need for protection of his life. He put you first. That's what you have to do in your marriage. You must put her first. You may be saying, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a second though. Aaron, she's really nice here on Sunday mornings. Like everyone loves her out and about, but at home, I have to die for that? Yes. Romans chapter 5 makes it very clear. Because Romans 5 tells us that even when we were weak, it starts off. And then Paul goes on and says, no, no, no. Even while we were sinners. But he doesn't stop there. He says, even when we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us. Jesus did not sit back going, come on, clean up your act. Then I'll die for you. No, he died for us because we were unlovely. So husbands, when your wife might be nagging you, she might be bothering you, she's making you understand Proverbs 21.9 that says, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. When When you start feeling that way, rather than sit there and go, woman, the Bible tells you to submit to me. When you feel that inside of you, you need to say, um, maybe I need to die to me. Because when you start dying to yourself for her sake, she's going to see your heart for her. She's not going to have a problem submitting to you. You make her role so much easier based on how you love and lead her. It is first on us to set the trajectory of our marriages. This past week, I was on YouTube's uh, trending page, and one of the videos that was on there uh, had the title, Divorced Couple Looks at Wedding Photos. Because I knew I was talking about marriage today, it had me curious, so I clicked on it. And sure enough, you see this couple look at their wedding photos. But before you get to that part of the video, they interviewed each of the couple. And in the part of it, they they asked them, you know, what do you think led to the divorce? And when it came to the husband, he was kind of saying, you know, I was getting up at 4.30, I was heading off to work, And we just never saw each other. And here's how he put it. He says, the marriage was good. It just got to a point we weren't a married couple anymore. We were just two people sharing a house. So it needed to end. That was the end of the chapter. You know what made me so sad is as I watched it, it was clear that these two still really cared about each other. There there was still affection. There, There was still a longing. But rather than to die to self... To let his job fade away and die. He allowed the relationship to fade and to die. That is not dying to self, gentlemen. If it means it, you give up the job to do what's best for her. 
That is what it means to truly love your wife like Christ loved the church. Maybe you need another image. Here's a picture of a husband holding his wife of 34 years. I saw this on Twitter this week, and it was the daughter that posted it. She shared that this is uh, her parents, married 34 years, and five years ago, her mom was uh, diagnosed with, uh, with young-onset dementia, and she is now in the final stages. She's only in her 50s. She barely remembers his name some days, and yet she knows she's safe with him. Why? Because he was willing to quit his job to take care of her full time. That is an image of a husband loving his wife like Christ loved the church. He set aside his dreams, his goals, his everything to take care of this wife that God entrusted to him. I think this is the kind of love that we long for. Do you know how I know? Because last time I checked last night, that photo had well over 600,000 retweets and well over 100,000, I'm sorry, 600,000 likes and 100,000 retweets. The, the girl, I went and looked at who it was that posted it. She only had like 1,000 followers. So it wasn't like she's some famous person. But she posted a picture of her parents, shows this kind of love, and it goes viral. Because this is what we long for. We want a relationship where there is harmony, there is peace, the love is genuine, we are honoring one another. Because this is how God designed marriage to be. But it is hard to submit. It is so difficult to die to self. That's why you must keep your eyes on Jesus. Because when you look at Jesus, you see someone who did submit. He submitted to his father. You look at Jesus and you see someone who is willing to die. He was willing to give it all for us to do what was best for us. And so if you're looking at your marriage saying, this is hard, I will agree with you, it is. But there is joy that can be found. Do not wait for your spouse to clean up their act. You go into it doing what God calls you to do. Because Jesus did not sit around waiting for us to get it all together. He did for us what needed to be done, even when we weren't truly asking for it. Now, if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, I do not want you walking out of here making a key mistake. I don't want you walking out of that door thinking, okay, that's it. I'm married. I've just got to love my spouse better. I'm just going to love them genuinely. I'm going to give them honor. I'm, I'm going to make this better. That's great. I'm glad you want to feel that. But before you can do that, I just need to point out, you need Jesus. Jesus is to be your motivation. This is only found in a relationship with Christ. Because then as you have this relationship with Christ, now you have what it takes to love your spouse, to, whether it's to submit or to die. So I'm going to invite you to put your faith in Jesus first. To not just make this commitment to make your marriage better, but to first find Jesus, submit to him, and then let the gospel be the motivation, the fuel for you as you go into this marriage. And as I look around this room, I see a lot of my church family that I know already have a relationship with Jesus. And you, maybe you're saying, Aaron, how do I do this in my marriage? Look at Jesus. I want to encourage you. Go into it, not looking for what you get from them. Look at it, what can you give to them. That even if your spouse is having a bad day, 
You will still love them. You will still honor them. You will weep with them when they're weeping. But you do this to live peaceably, to have harmony, even when they're not doing their part of the marriage. Now, I realize that's hard. And so if you need someone to come alongside you, maybe you could just let me know. Maybe just send a, a prayer request, and, and I'll just pray for you. If you want, I'll get together with you, and I'll pray with you. Maybe you and your spouse, you're, you're doing the American thing, and you're making it look all good and nice, you know, when you come here on Sunday. But, but underneath, the marriage isn't going so great. Please do not be like so many Americans who keep trying to put on the front, everything's fine, and then it's crumbling underneath until it breaks down in separation or divorce. Get help. Maybe we could sit down together and try to help figure this out. Maybe I can help pair you with another couple, and they'll, they'll be able to listen to you and pray with you and, and, and help bring healing into your marriage. Fight for this. It's worth it. Don't buy into the world's idea that this is some sort of prison, that this is a shackle. You just need to get free and move on to the next chapter. Instead, your greatest joy can be found as you push through this and fight for this. Father, I just pray right now for the person here that this is hard to hear. They are struggling right now. Um, so, Father, I just thank you that, that through the gospel you can bring healing, that you can make us whole. Lord, I pray for the, the person who finds themselves in a difficult marriage. I pray that you'd help them to truly love their spouse the way you're calling them to. Because, God, it is hard. It is hard to submit. It is hard to die to self. It is hard to do this. And yet I believe it is for your glory and our joy that, that we can, um, that if, when we do this, you can change our marriages. Lord, I even pray for the marriages in this room that are, that are going great. I pray that you would first help them to continue to, to grow in their relationship with one another, that these marriages would grow closer and closer because it just continues to point to Jesus in the church, but also that you would give them a ministry to bless others, to help those who are struggling, that, that through this relationship, you would help bring hope to others. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who finds themselves single. If they are content in that, I pray they would find their joy in Jesus. But anyone that's in this room that's single and maybe longing for this sort of relationship, I pray, Father, that first and foremost, they would find their identity in you. They would not be looking for completion through another human being, that their completion would come through Christ. Because then, as they have a Jesus-centered identity, then when you bring them that spouse, they could bring that identity into that relationship and truly love genuinely to give honor in, in uh, abundance, to show respect, to show love, and to make this marriage everything you dreamt it to be. And Lord, I just pray that you'd also help us as a church to help reach those families in our communities that are struggling in their marriages. Because I believe that this gospel speaks into that. I want to see them experience what you have for them. And so God, I pray that you would send us as a church, that we would take your gospel, your love, your grace, and we would go to be a blessing. And when someone begins to share about the, the devastating things that are happening in their marriage, we would be listening ears who would also be able to speak hope into that situation. So God, I pray that you'd help us to live this out in our own marriages, for those of us who are married, to also bring this to the marriages of our communities so that we might see you do what only you can do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.